0: Okay, we're gonna be in 1 Corinthians. I should have the mic on. There we go. We'll be in 1 Corinthians 2 this morning. If y'all want to join us there. So when I was young, I was fascinated with mysteries. Um, I would go to the library and read all about Bigfoot and Loch Ness Monster and the Bermuda Triangle and all those crazy things. And uh, then I watched a TV show, I think it was called Ancient Aliens, uh, and how they built the pyramids and taught humans how to use tools and all this crazy stuff. Um, It's pretty ridiculous now that I look back on it, but it was the kind of thing that my young mind was sort of drawn to. And, And we still have some mysteries around. Uh, some that I just discovered when I made my way to West Texas. I've heard uh, numerous stories about El Chupacabra uh, from people who swear that they've seen one. Uh, now I think maybe it's really some other animal, but you can't tell them that, right? Uh, and then there's the Marfa lights. anybody ever seen the Marfa lights? A few of us, a few of us have. Um, or the Marfa mystery lights, or ghost lights. Is all different names. Um, I've seen the little balls of light on a couple of different occasions, or or at least what I think is supposed to be done. Now, I know that if you stand at that roadside viewing area that they built uh, out on Highway 90, and uh, if you look around dusk, if you look out over the plain to the south, you need to be aware that there's a radio tower uh, on a ranch to the south I guess southwest a little bit. It's over this way if you're looking south. And uh, everything to the right of that, they say, is headlights on the Presidio Highway going up and down, you know, the hills and the mountains. And so lights disappearing, you you know, and whatever. That's what that is. But if you're looking out sort of south and then to the left, so southeast, uh, you see some lights that go from left to right and up and down and they change color before darting off, that's supposed to be them. Now apparently the first recorded sighting is from 1883 when a cowhand by the name of Robert Ellison thought he was seeing Comanche campfires but found no trace of them when he went to look. Now both UT Dallas and Texas State University have sent teams out to study the phenomenon but neither group found anything conclusive. Uh, There was even a NASA engineer who studied them for 12 years, and he concluded that they were the result of underground friction producing electromagnetic plasma discharges at the surface. That's just fancy NASA talk for rocks rubbing against rocks making sparks. (laughs) Maybe he's right. Maybe that's what it is. But to be honest, I don't even care what they are, ultimately, you know? I just enjoy the idea that there are some things in the world that we don't fully understand. Some things that remain a mystery. Which brings us to our text for today where Paul unpacks a mystery that we all get to share So follow along with me and we're going to read in 1 Corinthians 2 beginning in verse 1. but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. May God bless the reading of his word. Okay. Now, Paul had already visited Corinth when he wrote this. In fact, he had stayed there for over a year, uh, which means that he was writing to a group of people that he knew fairly well. Here he was reminding them of that time period, of of what it was like when they first met and he first introduced them to the good news of Jesus Christ. Now I wasn't originally planning on saying anything about this really, but I've been moved during my study this week to sort of stop and and at least ask a couple of questions here. In the middle of his discussion of Jesus being the wisdom of of God. Paul reminded these believers of the first time they heard the story of Jesus. So consider this. When was the first time you heard that story? How long ago has it been? And who shared it with you? How did you feel when the Holy Spirit opened your eyes and your heart to the message? Was it just like any other day? Or was there something more to it? Something exciting? Something inspiring? Something that motivated you to action? Hopefully, those are great memories of good times spent doing the work of the kingdom. But what about now? Are the days when... When you come before the throne of God, just like the days when you don't, does it all sort of blur together? Is there still something exciting to your faith? Something inspiring? Something that motivates you to action? Is the good news of Jesus still working in you? I think maybe Paul was trying to get the Corinthian believers to recall what it was like when they first came to faith in Jesus and the way that that opened their minds to the wisdom of God and what happened afterwards. And I think we can stand to be reminded as well for all the same reasons. So Paul moved on by talking about the way that he approached them. And it wasn't in the way they would have been used to. In Corinth, as in other major Greco-Roman trading cities,
1: wisdom was found
0: in the city square, which was usually sort of adjacent to the marketplace, Uh, as we talked about, the public grocery store for ideas that we mentioned before, the place where teachers and those who wanted to learn gathered to share in the wisdom of the day, and it would be presented in the form of speeches followed by questions and answers and things like that. The speeches would have been full of exactly what Paul claimed he did not employ when he spoke to the Corinthians. He didn't use lofty or exalted speech. Paul was a well-educated man. As a member of the Sanhedrin, he would have been trained in both the Jewish scriptures as well as in Hellenistic culture, philosophy, and wisdom. He would have known how to interact with the wise men of his day the sophos and the suzatetes that we talked about, the philosophers and the teachers that would have met in that place. He would have been able to step right into that world and hold his ground with such people. But that's not how he approached the Corinthians. By his own confession, he approached them with nothing but the simple story of the crucified Jewish carpenter who became king. Foolish scandalous story of how the Son of God became one of us so that we could become like him, so that we could know him. What Paul did not do was try to persuade the Corinthians. He didn't try to convince them that there wasn't God by offering proof. He didn't argue with them over the political direction of their country. What he did was tell the story of Jesus and then stand back as the Holy Spirit did the work. And I think we have trouble with this. We either want to sort of micromanage the gospel, or we don't really want to say anything at all. What I mean is that as Christians, we have developed all these ways of sharing the gospel that essentially amount to us persuading people that we are right. Right or we just think we are, and that they are all wrong if they don't agree with us. We refuse to engage with them either out of fear or animosity sometimes. I honestly think Paul would be incredibly bothered by the Christianity of our country. I think we would be getting a letter, maybe seven. The main thing we can learn from how Paul approached the Corinthians is to keep it simple. The gospel may be foolish and scandalous, but it is not complicated. It's simple. And while each of us has encountered Jesus in a unique way, we still trust in the same person and the same story. Jesus was born to peasants. He taught people to love God and each other. He demonstrated what the kingdom of God was like the Jewish religious leaders teamed up with the Roman authorities to have him murdered on a cross. Then, on Sunday morning, on the first day of the week, he walked out of the tomb and took his seat at the right hand of God the Father as king over all creation. Now, everyone is invited to be a part of his kingdom. From the people in Corinth in the middle of the first century to right now. That's the simple gospel. It's so simple that Paul talked about it in terms of being the hidden and secret wisdom of God. A wisdom that none of the rulers of that age understood. He reminded them that when he was with them, the Holy Spirit was at work. Things were happening. The kingdom of God, the power of God was on full display among them. That should stir up in us, I think, a desire to see God doing the same kinds of things in us. The power of God to be on full display here in our lives and in our congregation and then through us into this community. Sometimes it seems like we're just happy with the status quo, with things being as they have always been, We may complain about what's going on in the world, but we seem content with not doing much more than complain about it. But when the power of God is involved, things change, things move. Things are not status quo. We can't claim to follow Jesus while sitting around being complacent. That's not how it works. Because when the Holy Spirit is at work, We are drawn into a relationship with God and then with each other, and then we're motivated to go into the world and tell people about Jesus as we show them His love. All of this springs out of the simple gospel story. The story itself is literally down to earth, so much so that the lofty rulers and philosophers and teachers of wisdom considered it foolishness. Paul described it as a secret and hidden wisdom. Not because God didn't want anyone to know it, but because their own pride kept them from seeing it. We can easily make this same mistake. We can overlook the simplicity of the good news and make faith in Jesus into this overly complicated thing. We can build doctrinal and denominational walls that keep us from interacting with each other. We can defend these walls to the death, acting as gatekeepers for a kingdom that doesn't need them. We can make the gospel into a matter of agreeing with certain theological ideas instead of it being about a relationship with our Creator. But none of that is our calling as followers of Jesus. And Paul was showing how in his wisdom, God had made a simple, foolish, scandalous story about a Jewish carpenter into the way, the truth, and the life. And ultimately, the question here isn't why God would have secret and hidden wisdom. The real question is why we would turn it all into something it was never intended to be. In Jeremiah thirty-three three, God opened the door of this simple wisdom to anyone who would come saying, Call to me and I will answer you and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. It doesn't take years of study to know Jesus. It doesn't take a PhD in theology to know Jesus. You don't have to know Hebrew and Greek to know the simple story of Jesus. This is why Paul approached things the way he did and it's why we should approach them the same way, unveiling the wisdom of God by telling the story. To do so, we have to rely on the Holy Spirit. Because the wisdom of God isn't something that we figure out. It's something that is revealed to us. As simple as it is, we can't see it for what it is. We need the Spirit to open our eyes, to open our hearts and minds, To move us past our pride so that we can see how what seems so foolish and scandalous from the outside is actually the wisdom of God. And so how does the Holy Spirit do this? Well, that's that's the question. There's a number of ways, most of which go unnoticed in our everyday lives because we aren't looking for them. For example, how many of us wake up on a weekday morning and our first inclination is to seek the Lord in prayer? After all, isn't that what Jesus did? Mark 1.35, we read that rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. This is something the Holy Spirit does in us. The fact that we even care about God or want to pray is the work of the Spirit. But let's get even more specific. How does the Spirit show us the wisdom of God? Well, it begins by waking us up. I don't just mean when we open our eyes and roll out of bed in the morning. The Spirit wakes us up from the state that we are in. In Ephesians 2, 1-2, Paul wrote, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. And then as we read in John six sixty it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So the picture we get from Scripture is that we are dead and the Holy Spirit brings us to life. Now some may be thinking, but we're already alive. That's only partially true. We are alive as living beings in the natural realm, but we have to be awakened to the spiritual realm. And this is where everything sort of begins. The Holy Spirit wakes us up, and we wake up, and the good news no longer seems foolish. This is why Jesus had that whole discussion with Nicodemus in John 3, where he told him that he had to be born again to see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus asked him how was he supposed to go through all that again as an adult, And in John 3, 5, Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In John 7, 37-39, we read that on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because the G- because Jesus had, was not yet glorified. Now that might seem complicated, but it's really not. Because in truth, this is what happens behind the scenes. It, it happened at Pentecost, and it's still happening now. The Spirit giving us life is not something we have to do not something we can doctrinally believe in in order for it to happen. The Spirit wakes us up and gives us life. The only thing we do is see it with new eyes. The spiritual world comes alive for us in a way it never would have otherwise and we have the opportunity to respond to it, to lean into the spiritual realm that we have been shown or To reject it the way that we already were. There's a choice we have to make. What to do with the wisdom of God once it is revealed to us? Which is why Paul made it clear that these things were revealed by the Spirit because the Spirit is God. This is the Spirit that we have received. Paul then clarified further by distinguishing between what he called the natural man and the spiritual man. We are all born as natural people. We would all be born natural men or mankind or humans. It's part of the natural world. As a result, we are shaped by the natural world. Our thoughts and beliefs are formed by the world that we grow up in. But to the extent that we often don't even realize it or question it, it's almost subconscious. For example, the three core characteristics of Western civilization are democracy, rational thinking, and individualism, right? Those are the core foundational beliefs. These ideas form the basic foundation of everything else, and they unfold in various ways in our lives. Some are more obvious, but some are not, such as how our sense of rugged individualism keeps us from understanding what the kingdom of God is really like, because in God's kingdom, we are not in individuals. That's not how that works. We are a community, a body of believers that relies on each other, not just a group of in- individuals who hang out together on Sundays, but a family that depends on each other daily. This is a major difference we can miss if we just follow the assumptions of the natural world. Later in the same letter, Paul would explain this in more detail. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12-14, through he wrote, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free and all were made to drink of one spirit, for the body does not consist of one member of many. We used to sing a song at the church I grew up, uh, where I grew up and I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Some of you may know that song. Because this is reality of life in the kingdom. And all this to say that the world we're born into and raised in does not give us this idea. In our culture, we are told that we're on our own. We have to make our own way. We have to make something of ourselves and we grow up with a sense of pride in the things that we do and accomplish that might be a bit bigger than it should be. So much so that we would rather suffer than ask for anyone's help. We would rather put on a mask and act like things are fine when they are not. Even as Christians, we carry this mentality into our faith. We deny the presence and power of the Holy Spirit who is endlessly working to give us a new identity as members of a family. And according to Paul in verse 14, this is part of how the natural person operates. Having no sense of the things of God, of the way of God, of the family of God, any of that. And Paul wrote that this is because the natural person can't accept this way of approaching life. It's foolishness. Like the idea of God being crucified on a Roman cross, it just doesn't make any sense. This is why we've been given the Holy Spirit. And it's also why we need to be in tune with the Holy Spirit daily. As Paul said, these things are spiritually discerned, and the only way we can really plug in is to be connected with the Spirit open hearts and open minds, ready for what the Spirit will reveal to us, ready for where the Spirit will direct us to go, ready for whatever interactions the Spirit will lead us into. To wrap up this point, Paul quoted from Isaiah 40, 13-14, where the prophet wrote, Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? What, has man, what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? These are, of course, rhetorical questions. The implication is that no one can teach God anything, that the wisdom of God is beyond the counsel of humans. But Paul also pointed out that while we can't begin to fathom the whole measure of God's wisdom, we can share in it that because we are filled with the Holy Spirit who knows the mind of God, we have the ability to share in the mind of Christ. It doesn't mean we know everything. It simply means we are beginning to be formed and shaped by Him rather than the way of the world. That the simple gospel by which God saves us also makes us like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the result is that we have begun the journey into the wisdom of God. None of us are there yet. None of us have arrived. We should always be growing, always moving forward, never satisfied with standing still. As Paul wrote in Philippians 3.14, we should always press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Some things will remain a mystery. Like the Marfa lights, they will just hover out of reach. But for now, we can trust in the fact that the Lord has us in His hands that we are being held in the arms of a loving God who has given us His Spirit, and that it's okay if we don't know everything because the Lord who created everything has the power to do what He promised. Will you pray?